In this episode, I am once again joined by Lee Brasington, Buddhist meditation teacher and author of Right Concentration, a practical guide to the jhanas. Lee reveals his upcoming solo retreat plans and personal meditation goals, and considers why it is that he continues to meditate after so many decades of practice. Lee recalls his career as a computer programmer and draws analogies from the computer world to the workings of human beings on the Dharma path. Lee expresses his views on AI, in particular whether or not AI will replace meditation teachers, and goes on to explore what makes a great meditation teacher and what makes a bad one, as well as the importance of heart connection when leading retreats, and answers the question, how enlightened should someone be before they can teach meditation? Lee also shares an exchange he had with an AI in which he asks questions about jhana meditation and evaluates the AI's answers. Lee goes on to offer his take on Shinzen Young's ultrasound neuromodulation research and questions the possibility of its efficacy to bring about meaningful spiritual progress. So without further ado, Lee Brasington. Lee Brasington, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Steve. It's really nice to be back. Yes, it's so wonderful to be talking with you again. We were just discussing before we started recording. It's been too long since our uh, our episodes that we've recorded. Uh, we've done several, actually. We've done two solo episodes, which are among the most popular and commented upon episodes in the history of the podcast, actually. Uh, okay. One of them focusing on Janice, the other one focusing on your work to do with dependent origination. And you've also been a guest uh, twice in the panel group with uh, Shinsen, Jay Sanguinetti, Chelsea Fasano, uh, discussing neuroscience and Buddhism, etc. Those were also extremely fascinating episodes. So I'm so yeah. pleased to be talking with you again. Yeah, it's great to be back. Um, I totally enjoy your podcast. And you know, if somebody wants to know about a podcast, oh, yeah, go to Guru Viking. There's really good stuff there. And I enjoy doing them. And then I enjoy watching others that um, you've done over the over the year, or you've been doing this for what a couple of years now, right? few years, yeah. Few yeah, years. nice. There's a lot of really good stuff here. Thank you. That's very kind of you. So today we're going to focus on, I suppose we could say, the, the cutting edge of the intersection between Dharma, Buddhism, and emerging technologies such as AI and computers in general. You might even get to ultrasound and the neuromodulation work that Shinzen and Jay are doing at their SEMA lab in Arizona. And I know you have lots to say on those topics. And in fact, you have yourself a rich background in computer programming. But first of all, there's something that you mentioned in our pre, uh, when we were talking before that I must ask you about. You said you're going on several retreats this year, including some self-retreats. So I'm wondering, right. you've been meditating for many decades. What inspires you to keep, what are you going to be doing on these retreats? What, what, are, your, what are your plans? What is left for you to investigate that would, would see you go off on solo retreats and, and retreats indeed with sometimes with other, other teachers. So the Buddha said he taught only dukkha and the end of dukkha, right? And I haven't reached the end of dukkha, so that's what's left. But also, I find that exploration of Buddhism in particular and spiritual traditions in general, um, Taoism in particular, um, but 
also Christianity, uh, the Sufis. Um, there's a lot that can be learned about how human beings function, uh, not so much physically, but mentally. When I was in the 10th grade, I knew I, I wanted to be a biologist because I wanted to study the brain and find out how the brain worked. And so I took biology and it was a lot of memorization. That was kind of boring. Okay, I'll be a chemist. And so I took chemistry in 11th grade and yeah, it was okay, but I didn't, I didn't really, you know, it was okay. And, well, I'll take physics because that's what came next. And that was really interesting, sort of gotten away from the whole brain thing. But then when I got into higher mathematics, that was much more interesting. And my, my most interesting things that I worked on were in the foundations of mathematics, which is actually exploring how the mind works. And so I was back where I started. Um, but, you know, I, I was raised as a Presbyterian preacher's kid, and my father was a literalist, and eventually it was like, wait a second, no in the ark, Daniel in the lion's den, what's the difference between that and Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny? It just, so I rejected all of that stuff and became an ethical hedonist for, you know, like uh, 18 years. And then I went on my first retreat and it was like, oh, here's something that's actually really useful. Um, a way to explore, a systematic way to explore the mind. Because really what I was interested in, in 10th grade about biology, I want to know about how the mind works. And I still want to know more about how the mind works, what's going on. And Buddhism has been a very rich source of understanding of that. So, yeah, I, I want to keep exploring until I'm dead. I, I don't think it's possible to understand everything, but I want to understand as much as I can. Uh, some of it just for the sake of understanding, but also it tends to make my life go a lot better. Um, people ask me, so with all your practice, what's been the biggest change? And the biggest change has been when things go wrong, I don't freak out as badly as I used to. And so, yeah, things continue to go wrong. That's the nature of reality. That's the first noble truth. So, yeah, I want to gain more skills for dealing with that, but I also want to understand. So that's why I go on retreat. As for my goal when I go on retreat, there was a time when I would go on retreat over New Year's with a group of very advanced practitioners at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. And there was no teacher. I mean, we were all doing our thing. It was essentially a self-retreat, except in the evenings we'd get together and go around the room and people would talk about their practice and what they'd done. And then somebody might say, well, would you like some feedback on that? And so it was, it was like a group interview, <laughs> like the group was interviewing the individuals. And it was really rich. And about the third time I showed up, somebody said, well, we should go around the group and, and set her, you know, say what we're, what our goals are for this practice. And when it came to me, I said, my goal is to show up and see what happens. I mean, it was, I didn't plan that out. That's just what came out of my mouth. But it was like, yeah, that's the whole idea. Show up and see what happens. So I'm going on these retreats to fully show up and see what happens. I have enough background in technique 
that I think I know what to do. And I'm just going to go do the techniques that I know. Plus, I'll be on retreat with Gil Fronstel, who's a really great teacher, and I'm sure he'll have some interesting things to say and work with whatever he's teaching as well. So it's, it's still about exploring. The, the end of all your exploring will be that you return to the starting point and know it for the first time. I mean, I'm misquoting it, but that's, that's the thing. And so, yeah, I just keep exploring. That's Elliot, of course. Yeah, right. You've said a few things there in terms of why you keep coming back to retreats. Exploration seems to be the primary one. You've also mentioned it helps life go better and, and that there's still dukkha to eliminate. I wonder if your motivation, if your profile, motivation profile has changed over the course of your practice. In particular, I'm wondering, are there times when this elimination of dukkha has been a greater or lesser motivation? Is it possible to eliminate enough dukkha that it's good enough, <laughs> for example? <laughs> I mean, do people stop practicing when they eliminate enough dukkha? If they don't have that exploration itch, that exploration gene that you have is is that perhaps one of the reasons why people might a person might stop practicing because they eliminate enough dukkha that it's sort of tolerable now or what are the other reasons people stop rather than practice over the decades as you've done so consistently for myself the overcoming dukkha was number two number one was the exploration that's that was what was keeping me going and the fact that it eliminated some of my dukkha oh that was a really nice bonus, but it wasn't what was motivating me. Okay, so I'm a greed type. The Buddha obviously was an aversive type. I mean, you know, somebody who explores dukkha is probably going to be aversive. Get rid of this stuff. Uh, but for me, it, it was more about, oh, what can I learn? You know, so that was what was going on. As for why people stop, maybe they do eliminate enough dukkha, or maybe they hit a plateau and you know, things aren't really progressing. And it's like, why am I doing this? Nothing's changing. And so they move on. Uh, they may encounter something that's a bit disturbing. I mean, if you look deeper, deeply into Anicca, Dukkha, or Anatta, yeah, I mean, in the progress of insight, this is the, the Dukkha Jnanas. You get enough insight and it might be kind of disturbing to you that, oh, uh, everything I'm counting on for security uh, it, it looks like it's not really going to give me security. This is wrong. I've done something wrong. And so they go somewhere else trying to find something other than that. I can't really say why people stop practicing because they don't usually talk with me after they stop practicing. They don't come on my retreats because duh, they stop practicing and so forth. But um, the, the plateauing thing is one possibility because I've had students who come on a retreat and they say something like, yeah, my, my practice has gotten really stale lately. And uh, yeah, these jhanas, that, that makes things interesting again. So yeah, if someone's practice gets stale and they don't come across something that makes it interesting again, then maybe they quit and walk away and go do something else. But I, you have to ask all the other people why they quit practicing. I don't really know. Fascinating indeed. Well, let's turn to the, the, the matter at hand. And I'd first like to talk about your career as a software engineer. You've had a remarkable career. 
as a software engineer, your history working in computers, you've, you know a bewildering number of programming languages. You've worked in many, many operating systems across the decades and done very interesting projects. I, I saw that you co-designed, this is one example, a Tibetan dictionary program over a four-year <laughs> period. That's incredible. I mean, that's not even the most incredible thing. So I'm wondering if you could give uh, a history, really, of your involvement in computers from when did you first become interested? And can you perhaps take us through some of the highlights of your career? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my sophomore year in college, I had signed up for a religion course where I went to university. Um, religion was a requirement. It was a Presbyterian school. And uh, I really liked this professor. I'd had him as part of a group teaching thing as my freshman year. And so I signed up for a course with him. Well. He's a really good professor, and he had another course for uh, uh, higher um, upperclassmen, and uh, it was real popular. So he decided to teach two classes of that and cancel my class. So now I had a hole in my schedule, and I had to find something that fit in there because the schedule was really perfect. And oh, they're teaching computer programming at the same time. So I went to the head of the math department, asked him if that'd be a good fit, and he said, "Yeah, you should do that." <laughs> I mean. Yeah, they canceled my religion, and I, so I signed up for computers. And when I first started, the first six weeks, it was kind of a struggle, and then it clicked. And so the first big program, my project for the semester, was a tic-tac-toe program. Now, this is on a IBM 1620. Your watch is smarter than that computer. Um, it had a card reader, a card punch, and a console typewriter. That was it. But uh, you... you took your output and took it into the other room and ran it through another machine that printed out what was punched into the cards. Um, and so I wrote this tic-tac-toe program. Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty nice project. And uh, it, yeah, it got me an A in the course. And the computer was in a room that was locked at night. I could almost pick the lock on the door without breaking stride. It was very easy to pick with a pocket knife. And a lot of uh, a lot of us geeks knew how to do that. And so sometimes I'd go in there at 10 o'clock at night and there's already somebody playing with the computer. You know, this is the only computer on campus. There's nothing else. And those of us that knew how would go in and write programs and whatnot and, and had fun. Then when I got out of college, uh, I was going to go to grad school in mathematics, but I had just gotten married and didn't really have enough money. But I had worked uh, a couple of summers as a computer operator, first where I went to summer school, where my parents had moved to Missouri. And um, this, the next year they wanted me back because I was good. And so I had an IBM uh, Model 40, 360 Model 40 to play with. And that was great. Uh, I was the night operator and I would do whatever was left over. And then I had this huge machine. And so I wrote programs for myself and things like that. I, I did a matrix manipulation program that would add, subtract, multiply, and divide matrices just, just for fun. Um, I wrote a, a, a computer dating app. Uh, my girlfriend was supposed to come up with all the questions. I had it set up so, you know, it could match people up, but we never did anything with it. Uh, so 
I'm not going to go to graduate school. I better get a job. So I got a job operating a computer for a year. And then I quit that job and got a better one that should lead into programming shortly. Well, it I was so good as an operator, they kept me on as an operator for about six months before I got into programming. And this was for a computer, a company that computerized television stations schedules in terms of what programs and what commercials will be shown at what point in the program. The most interesting thing I did there, the commercials, they had to fit into the slot. There's a two minute break. And so you can put in four 30 second commercials. You could put in two one minute commercials or a one minute and two thirties, but you can't put a Ford and a Chevrolet at the same time. And they were the criteria, you know, this is supposed to show these many during run, uh, prime time and these many during daytime soap operas. And it was a really interesting program. It was a heuristic rather than an algorithm. It was just trying to find a good spot and it would shuffle things around. and so forth. Um, I left that job to move to San Francisco, worked a number of different computer jobs, ran off to take a three-year trip around the world. Um, eventually, I worked for a database company. And what turned out, I wound up doing human interfaces to databases as my primary thing. Uh, somebody else was doing the back-end database stuff, and I was doing front-end stuff, and it was mostly, yeah, writing human interfaces to databases. Uh, the last company I worked for was the, the best company. It was profitable, and it was fun to work there, and they were doing interesting stuff. And again, it was a human interface to a database. It was a source control management system. and. You know, I had the, the front end, it was running on your computer, so you could put your source control into the system. When you write software, you need to keep a copy of everything you do. So if something screws up, you can figure out, oh, it worked here, it broke here, must be some change in between, stuff like that. And that was a fun job. I worked there for about nine years or so. You mentioned the Tibetan program. That was the best program I ever wrote. Uh, <laughs> It was funny. It was it was a one off. I was studying with my Tibetan teacher, Sogni Rinpoche, and he had a Tibetan text preservation project. And his translator, Tony Duff, was the one in charge of that project. And they needed a Tibetan Tibetan dictionary, you know, just to do their editing work. They were taking all these woodblock print uh, books and putting them into computers. And yeah, there's typos and you can't quite make out what that is and so forth. So they needed a Tibetan Tibetan dictionary. Well, there's a very good one that the Chinese did, but it's paper and they wanted a computerized version. So Tony asked me, could I write a program that could display a single file with Tibetan characters and also Romanized Sanskrit? And well, English, of course, because, you know, that was going to be necessary for some of the stuff in there. And so I wrote this little one-off program, you know, when you write a program, you can optimize for size or speed or maintainability or quickness of uh, creation. And I optimized for the latter because it's a one-off. It's just going to display this one file, right? And so I had it up and running about six weeks in English, 
and I had hooks there. Okay, this is where the Tibetan keyboard will go, and this is where the Tibetan display will go. And then I went to Kathmandu, where the project was happening, and in a week had hooked in the Tibetan parts. I mean, I didn't know how to do Tibetan, but Tony showed me we had it going. And then he says, can you make it do read-write? Because this is a read-only program. And it was like, uh, I want to go trekking. You know, I was coming here for a month. I figured I'd get this done in a week and I could go trekking. But yeah, I'll see. And I did. And yeah, I wound up programming for the whole month and I had a read-write program that could basically you start it up and you could type in a Tibetan file uh, into this database. I then realized that if you made a database that only had one record and you hid the key field, you would just have well, a word processor. So suddenly I had a Tibetan word processor and database program. And I just kept working on it and it kept getting better and better and more sophisticated. And it's the program that I use for everything that I do, pretty much anything, any word processing thing that I'm writing. Uh, the books I've written were written in that program because it handles English and German and French and Russian and Greek and Tibetan and Japanese. And I made it a, a Unicode compliant program that will handle pretty much all the languages of the world. The one that I never got around to doing was Singhalese, the Sri Lankan language, uh, another Buddhist country, but it, it's even more difficult. <laughs> Uh, somewhat more difficult than Tibetan even. But it, it's a cool program and yeah, I use it all the time. The other cool program that I wrote, so I'm an old school guy, you know, I worked on a command line. I, you know, I was there with CPM, I was there with DOS, I wrote thousands of lines of DOS. Um, and so when Windows came along, it was rather unstable and not that great to use. And eventually with Windows 95, it became usable. Um, and it had a DOS box and I continued to use the DOS box. But the DOS box was stupid. You couldn't use control C and control V to cut and paste. So I decided to write my own. Some of the work I had been do doing for the Perforce, the source control management system, we had hooked the standard in, standard out, standard error for a DOS box to display in the program I was working on. It was like, yeah, I could do that. I could write my own front end for a DOS box. And so I did. And I don't use Windows Explorer or the, uh, what is in the Max Finder. I don't use that unless I have to. And I'm doing everything in a DOS box because it's just so much more efficient. But it's my DOS box and it does anything I want it to do. And just like with the word processor, if it doesn't do something I want, I just put the code in and it does it. So yeah, I, the computers do what I want them to do because I tell them to do what I want them to do. And I write little uh, things. I wrote a, uh, you know, a thing that, that makes the clipboard uh, really a clip book. It re remembers things and it, you can take something and it'll, uh, you know, convert it into text only, I mean, you know, just little utilities like that. I probably have, probably have around 20 of them I use fairly frequently, just little utilities I wrote. So yeah, I've been playing with computers and making computers do what I wanted to do basically since uh, the fall of 1968. That's incredible. And so fascinating.
I wonder if you see any interaction between your life as a meditation practitioner and a meditation teacher and the way you've approached both of those roles, uh, activities, and your life as a computer programmer. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Concentration is a kind of important thing in meditation. Okay, if you're going to be a computer programmer, you got to concentrate. So they've been paying me big bucks to concentrate since, well, kindergarten, basically. They didn't pay the big bucks back then. But yeah, so I've had a lot of practice with concentration. I had years of programming experience before I ever took, excuse me, before I ever took up meditation. So there was that overlap. My way of thinking can be very uh, linear, like you would do for a computer program. And, and so it, the parts of Buddhism where linear thinking is going to be very helpful, I'm really good at that sort of thing. Um, luckily, I've had enough other types of thinking, more peripheral thinking, uh, that, that give me other things. But one of the things that's really important for computer programming is to be clear. If, you, if you're not clear when you tell a computer what to do, it's going to do something weird. This is guaranteed. Uh, Murphy's Law and Murphy was an optimist. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. And with computers, it's going to go wrong in the weirdest way possible. So yeah, you've got to be really clear. And so that translated into my teaching. I try and be really precise and clear with my instructions. And then those, for, for instance, learning the jhanas, it's kind of a linear thing, you know, do this. And when you get this experience, then do you do that, etc. So the linear clarity, I think, was very helpful. And then there's some ideas in computers that translate really important in, in, into Buddhist uh, Dharma in, in important ways. One of the early things in the progress of insight, one of the early insights is that mind and body are two and mind is in charge. And when I heard that, it was like, oh yeah, software and hardware. <laughs> and yeah, how the hardware operates is dependent on what the software does. And so that, that, was, that was just obvious to me from, uh, you know, my experience working with hardware and software. Uh, so yeah, there's been a lot of crossover there. Uh, particularly, the, the, I think the best thing was the clarity and the necessity of good concentration for both those. You're mentioning hardware and software. And, um, you know, it, in the industrial age, a metaphor for a human being, mechanistic. In the computer age, many computer metaphors have been used. And that idea has been, uh, it seems quite natural, in fact, hardware, software, etc., input, output, and so on, um, signal noise, that sort of thing. And sometimes that those metaphors are criticized as there's something not so good about uh, treating the human being like a machine or treating the human being like a computer. There are limits to that. I wonder what, what you think of that. And also, the, 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 the path of, of Dharma, the Buddhist path, to what degree is that algorithmic? To what degree do these metaphors apply? Is it a perfect fit? Are there limits? 
Yeah. So when I first started going outdoors, I mean, I moved to California and finally discovered an outdoors uh, outfit that I really could relate to. One of my friends discovered it, actually. And uh, one of the first trips, they said, don't confuse the map for the territory. And that has stuck. Don't confuse the metaphor for whatever it's a metaphor for. Uh, all metaphors are going to be incomplete. They're not going to really cover everything, but they can be helpful. They can, I mean, a map is, the map cannot possibly show you everything that's there, but it can be really useful for navigating. And it's the same thing for thinking of, yeah, the human being has the hardware, the physical body, and it has the mind. And I notice that my hardware is beginning to wear out, but the software keeps getting improved. That's why I'm going on these retreats. <laughs> another attempt to upgrade the software. There are useful things here, but you don't want to make the mistake of thinking that any simplification is fully accurate. And as long as I think you keep in mind that whatever metaphor you're using has its limitations, then it can be useful. What other metaphors can we draw from computer programming in particular, or computers in general, that apply to human beings or, and particularly, human beings are meditating for on, for example, the Buddhist path. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, one of the most important things if you're a programmer is KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. It's the same thing with the spiritual path. Don't try and complicate things too much. Uh, yeah. You look at something like the, the 12 links of dependent origination and you start studying it and it's, it doesn't make sense and it's really complicated and everything. But when you finally can simplify it down, oh, this is a mnemonic device for remembering a bunch of necessary conditions, then it starts to make sense and then you can start exploring it. So rather than trying to bite off everything at once, uh, take things in smaller chunks and see if you can understand them. For example, <clears throat> uh, on the night of his awakening, the Buddha remembered past lives and saw beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. Well, there's a whole bunch of ways you could run with that. But what if we took that as a metaphor, that the Buddha is actually seeing that who he is is the result of a lot that happened in the past, and actions that people do today is going to determine how the future unfolds. That's a lot simpler than trying to figure out, well, if this is not a self, how do I get reborn? Which, yeah, I think is a question that doesn't actually work very well. Because people are looking for a one-to-one -one rebirth. There was some guy in the past, it was me, and now when I die, there's going to be some guy in the future. Uh, that's, that's simple, yes, but I don't think it's accurate about what the Buddha was talking about. And when you start getting the big picture and simplify it down to, oh, yeah, I'm the result of a bunch of stuff that happened in the past, and my actions are going to, in some way, determine how the future unfolds, that's a better way of thinking about this. So you don't want to go too simple, but you don't want to make it too complex. You don't want to try and remember your past lives or anything like that. I don't think that's a worthwhile thing to do because then you're you're postulating that there is an Atta that was there in the past and that flies in the face of Anatta. 
uh, other things. Yeah, I'd need to sit down and think about it. Nothing is coming to mind. The, the hardware software is, is the one that, that most directly applies, but I'm sure I've used others during the course of my teachings, but nothing's coming to mind right now. You're touching on something we've discussed in previous interviews, which is uh, certain claims, of course, are made within the Buddhist religion, one of them being uh, rebirth. And you're skeptical of that claim, to put it to put it lightly. Yes. Um, you know, you all, yeah. But some people, of course, would would see that that claim as central to uh, Buddhism, or at least uh, very characteristic of it. Of course, you don't feel that way. You mentioned that your father was a literalist, mm -hmm. and uh, so I expect you have a nose for literalism <laughs> and its yeah. and its effect and its consequences. Could you say something about that in the context of Buddhism? Do you see literalism in the same way that your father uh, held in Buddhism? And what are its what are its effects? Yes, I see it. Unfortunately, quite a lot. Um, its effects are that it clouds what's really there. Um, most people have an immortality project. They want to figure out some way that when their body dies, they're not really going to die. Okay. And then, I mean, you look at most religions and they've got a solution to your immortality project. Believe or do these rituals or whatever. <clears throat> and in Buddhism, there's the teachings on rebirth. And then they're taking literally that, okay, when I die, I'm going to go get a new body and the quality of my new body is going to depend on how I behave while I'm here. And yeah, okay. Uh, the quality of the life you have now is also going to depend on how you behave here. This is actually far more important than your supposed future birth. But this is comforting to people. Most religions are comfort religions. You know, help, help you deal with the fact that your grandmother died. Oh, don't worry, she's gone to be a better place or whatever. As opposed to, yeah, realizing that everything is impermanent. So <clears throat> literalism often can be applied to generating comfort and security. And we live in a world where, yeah, first noble truth, <laughs> it's not always going to be comfortable. You're not going to find security whenever you look for it. So it can hide the, the deeper aspects of reality that really need to be addressed if you're going to make progress on the spiritual path. I think of uh, the four thoughts that turn the mind towards the Dharma. I'm thinking now in mm -hmm. a Tibetan Buddhist context. Or texts like uh, Bodhicharya Vitara, Shantideva, or Words of My Perfect Teacher, Paltrow uh, mm -hmm. and key in those texts is this idea that you have what they call the Mila Rinpoche, the precious human birth, and that who knows if you'll get this chance again, what if you're born as an animal or in hell realm or something like this, the chances of having a human birth are like a turtle in a grand great ocean that surfaces mm -hmm. once every hundred years and it manages to put its head through, you know, a life, a life ring or something that happens to floating there and so on. This sort of thing. And so a big part of the, if you want, argument for religious practice in certain Buddhist uh, sects hinges really 
on the on on this idea of rebirth and not only the promise of securing a better one uh, in the future incrementally perhaps or maybe radically but also the threat of a quite negative one if you don't do the practice so what you're saying here disrupts that quite a bit perhaps unless we take it metaphorically but i I wonder if if the authors of those texts would have seen that as a skillful use of metaphor. Or do you think they really believed it literally? And and does that matter? I have no idea whether they believed it literally. I have no idea that what we have preserved for us in the 21st century is actually what they said. Or did he get it tweaked a little bit in a direction that the preservers <clears throat> wanted to take it? I mean. I don't know that. Um, looking at the suttas, though, so the Buddha didn't, the Buddha took the existing cosmology. He didn't say, look, the current cosmology is wrong. Let me explain quantum mechanics to you. I mean, that wouldn't have worked. Nobody would listen to it. He said, yeah, yeah, there's all these heavens and the hell realms and everything, but they're all impermanent. You're here now, you've heard the Dharma. If you get born in one of the heavenly realms, you'll be so blissed out, you'll never practice, and you'll fall back down here and you'll have to start over again. Do the practice while you're here. And yeah, if you misbehave, okay, so yeah, you wind up in the bad places. Luckily, you can get out. And how quickly you get out is going to be to some extent done on, you know, how good you behave while you're here. I mean, so you do something terrible like King Adesatu kill your father, that's going to consign you to hell. But he was a preserver of the Dharma, so he'll get out after 40,000 years or whatever. So, so there's skillful means to take what was in the culture, don't frighten everybody away by rejecting it, but tweak it slightly and say, yeah, all these places are impermanent. And the best place to be to do the practice is where you are. Go do the practice. And I think that was very skillful on the Buddha's part. Did he believe all of this and so forth? Well, <laughs> I can't really say, but I certainly doubt it just because of reading what's there and seeing what, what was being taught. I think he was just like doing skillful means along the way. Often people want the Buddha to always have told the truth, never shaded it a little bit. But we have the story of his half-brother, uh, Nanda. So the Buddha comes back to uh, where he grew up, uh, and his half-brother is there, and he, the Buddha hands his begging bowl to his half-brother and walks off, and so his half-brother has to follow along. And gets trapped into becoming a monk but he's not happy he's thinking of his fiance and he wants to go back to her and the buddha says all right the sutta says the buddha takes his half-brother to one of the heavenly realms and shows him the pink-footed nymphs who live there and uh says to his half-brother, well, you want your fiancé, or would you like a hundred of these, 500 of these? And uh, the brother wants the 500. So he goes back, and he's practicing for the sake of nymphs, but other people find out that's why he's practicing, and he's embarrassed, and he goes off in the forest on his own, he practices and becomes fully awakened. So 
and comes back and he tells the Buddha, oh, forget about the nymphs. So did the Buddha lie to his brother? Did the Buddha take his brother up to heaven or did he put his, his arm around his brother and say, bro, you've heard I visit this heavenly realm with these nymphs. Let me tell you about these nymphs. Two guys, two brothers talking about women, you can imagine, right? And he describes them and he says, well, you want your fiance or 500 of these nymphs? Oh, I'll take the 500 nymphs, right? He doesn't even have to take him to heaven really. But however it was, the Buddha, was lying because practice was never going to get you 500 nymphs, but it was skillful means. And if you want to look it up, I believe that's uh, Udana 2.1. I think that's where it is. It's in the Udana. It's in the first couple chapters in the Udana, but it's a story there. And so I don't think we should take everything that is recorded that the Buddha said literally. Some of it is probably skillful means. And it depends on to whom he's speaking. If someone doesn't have the background to understand that the teachings on rebirth are skillful means, uh, he's not going to try and give that to them. He was very cognizant of his uh, hearers' backgrounds when he was giving a discourse. And he would teach to the level the person was at to take him up a little to another level. Basically, he was just trying to get people to practice. So, uh, <clears throat> and it's interesting in the gradual trainings, say like in Dikanikaya number two, the Samanyapala Sutta, when it talks about telling the truth, it talks about if someone is asking you in a court of law, about the truth. It doesn't say anything about always tell the truth. In fact, the Buddha said, if you know something is not true, not useful, don't say it. If you know something is true, but not useful, don't say it. If you know something is useful, but not true, don't say it. If you know something is both true and useful, find the right time to say it and say it with a loving heart. So yeah, were there times when he shaded the truth for skillful means? Yeah. To me, it seems like there were, and it could be that some of these other people like Shantideva or some Patro uh, Rinpoche were shading the truth, but it could be that they fully believed it. It doesn't matter. Uh, the, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life is one of the most brilliant works ever, and everything I've read by Patro Rinpoche has been very helpful on the path. So whether these people believed in it or not doesn't matter to me. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for what they can teach me. That's very fascinating indeed. And Buddhism, of course, is a religion that's quite old, two and a half thousand years. And mm -hmm has been practiced in many different, all throughout the, that period and in, in, in different cultures and different places by different people, of course, that's uh, obvious. But the point of me saying that is to say that presumably many of those practitioners, perhaps even the successful ones, had rather different ideas to each other about certain sorts of things, about how the world works and, mm -hmm. and so on. Is it possible for someone who took all that, literally, the things that you've been questioning here, is it possible for them to succeed in the path of Buddhism or, or would that success eventually see them in your view, seeing through that, that that's a lit, that, that's a little interpretation. Is it possible in other words, to get enlightened and believe in rebirth? And then is it possible to get enlightened and not believe in rebirth? What's necessary in terms of one's worldview in your, in your opinion, to succeed on the Buddhist path? Number one, 
don't hold fixed views. In other words, every view is provisional. That's probably the number one thing. Uh, you got to do the practice. Maybe that's number one first. You got to do the practice and everything that you know to be true is provisional. Okay, so be willing to let go of any view if you find something better. So if you're believing in rebirth and that you're going to get a new body after you die and you cling to that, it may be that your clinging to that stops you from going deeper. Okay, any view that you cling to, clinging to the view that there is no body, that is not a body I'm going to get in the future, is it could also stop me. Because to tell you the truth, I have no idea what happens after we die. You know, I have no memory of ever having died. I hear lots of contradictory things. You know, I just leave that in the I don't know bucket. I'll either find out or not when I die. Um, but it doesn't matter. I, I got to do the practice now and I try as best I can to keep an open mind. Uh, an open mind is probably the most important thing to bring on this, any spiritual path. And so if you're clinging tightly to rebirth, that's going to get in the way because you're clinging tightly to something and any tight clinging is going to get in the way. Um, I'm scheduled to do something last week in June of next year for Barry Center for Buddhist Studies on right view and wrong view. And that's what we'll see as we spend this weekend taking a look at views that basically, number one, don't cling to any view, keep everything as provisional. And that's going to be really important. So whether you're taking things literally or you've come up with a very sophisticated interpretation, either of those, if you cling to it, it's going to it's going to cause problems. And what if you don't cling to it, but you still believe it? Is the view of rebirth in itself, even if you don't cling to it necessarily, it's sort of just, I suppose, laying around. Is that, I don't, know if you, I don't even know if that's possible for it to sort of lay around in your, in your belief structure. Um, is that going to inhibit uh, progress in the path, do you think? Hard to say. Hard to say. Uh, there, there's passages in the suttas that I think you would have trouble understanding if you're clinging to rebirth. For example, Majjhima 38, after a long discussion on dependent origination, the Buddha says to the monks, monks, knowing and seeing in this way, that is in terms of dependent origination, would you run back to the past wondering, <clears throat> was I, was I not? What was I? What did I become? <clears throat> no, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing this way, would you run off to the future wondering, will I be? Won't I be? What will I be? What will I become? No, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you be inwardly perplexed about the present, wondering, am I? Am I not? What am I? What is this being? Where does it come from? What will happen to it? No, venerable sir. Monks, are you saying this just because I'm your teacher? No, venerable sir. Are you saying this because you know it from your own experience? Yes, venerable sir. So I take this to mean that if you truly deeply understand dependent origination, the idea of you existing in the path, or you will exist in the future, or even you as a separate entity today does not occur. Because you see that you understand the world from a very different perspective. You understand it from the perspective of 
what I talk about is streams of dependently arising processes interacting as opposed to entities. You're seeing the world of verbs rather than nouns. Uh, and so if you're clinging tightly to <clears throat> I'm going to be reborn, you're clinging tightly to some atta because the atta is the method of rebirth. And yeah, you might try and find a simile. The, the most famous one, of course, is you have a candle and it's burning. You take another candle and you can light that candle and it goes on. You blow out the first, but the light remains. And of course, my answer is, okay, get a candle, light it, get a, an aluminum pie plate, a, a cheap one, right? And put a match in it. Now hold the match, the pie plate with the match in it over the candle. And when the match lights, then light the other candle. Now what got transferred? Heat. It wasn't the flame that got transferred even in the first place, but it's very obvious all that got transferred is heat. Heat is got so much entropy, it's hard to imagine that heat from me going to another body, you know, that amount of entropy is going to make it across the life-death barrier. So, okay, uh, I don't think your simile works. And yeah, I mean, when I when I bring this up, it scares people. You know, they've got their immortality project, and anything that threatens their immortality project is frightening. And so, some of the people listening to this, you know, might turn it off right now because oh, this guy's threatening my immortality project. I'm sorry, people, I don't want to threaten your immortality project. I'm just giving you my understanding. I might be totally wrong. Okay, one last question, perhaps, in on this thread, and then let's switch to switch to those other themes. You know, I brought up Shantideva and Paltrow Rinpoche sort of deliberately. I know you're very rooted in the suttas, and uh, richly so. And I also know you mentioned you, you studied with Tsongkhen Rinpoche in the Tsongkhen context. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the variety of, of Buddhist doctrines that have emerged over its, over its two and a half thousand year history? Some people, of course, as you know, will say, well, these are all original teachings of the Buddha that, for whatever reason, are released at a certain time into the world, or hidden in uh, other realms, or given to disciples who kept them secret until the appropriate time, and so on, or transferred mind to mind in some supernatural way. Other people will say, well, no, this is simply the uh, evolution of a religion. Um, and sort of we can see in this historical context, we can speculate as to what happened, we can trace lines of thought and socio-cultural forces and meetings of different ideas and systems and so on. So we have the Mahayana revolution, for example, and later on Tantrism and Adriana, etc. Those are only two. So we could say, well, then some might say, well, this is in fact a degradation of the Dharma. I've heard that view, actually. Oh, this Mahayana, mm -hmm. the latest, it's a degradation of the Dharma, the original pure teachings of the Buddha. It's not compatible. Others say, no, it's an evolution. It's actually an improvement. It's called Mahayana for a reason, the great vehicle, great compared to what? Well, the, uh, the previous one, the Hinayana. It's actually um, a flowering, uh, a greater expression, and so on. And Vajrayana, of course, the diamond vehicle, even better. The clue is in the label. I think the right. market is there. So I'm perhaps rather coarsely throwing these different ideas around here. But what do you think about about that uh, given that you've you've practiced you practiced Tsongkhen with Tsongkhen Rinpoche and you're so rooted so richly in the sutra in the suttas as is clear already 
How do you approach that, that question? So there's wisdom to be found in all of this, and there's confusion to be found in all of this, okay? The, the proportion of signal to noise, of wisdom to confusion, um, yeah, it varies from place to place. And the ability to glean the wisdom is also going to vary from practitioner to practitioner, depending on their what they've come in with, what their background is. Uh, some people are going to need the very elaborate uh, Tibetan setup with you know all the bodhisattvas and everything else in order to be able to really get to the deep wisdom part. Other people are going to be turned off by that. Uh, I'm looking for yeah, well. The one person I'm sure knew what the Buddha was talking about was the Buddha. Okay, so I'm just curious, how close can we get back to the original teachings of the Buddha? And so that's what interests me the most. But I have found great wisdom in Nagarjuna. I mean, you know, this is what, five chapters in, in my book on dependent origination on Nagarjuna's teachings on emptiness. I found great wisdom in Shantideva. I mean, his dedication to merit, nobody has even come close to that. That's absolutely brilliant. People talk about the wisdom chapter. That's that's really good. But the dedication to merit is, is just mind-blowing. Patro Rinpoche, yeah, that guy was a genius. Uh, th there, are, there are a number of teachers that I really like. Uh, Shabkar, The Flight of the Garuda. Uh, I have a, a copy of that that travels with me wherever I go. You know, it, it's there. It's it's a little thing. It's chapter 17 in there. One of the most brilliant works ever and totally compatible with early Buddhist texts. So all of this stuff has stuff that's useful. Some of it has more useful stuff and some of the stuff is more useful. But uh, yeah, you've got to find the stuff that you can relate to and work with it. Just don't go clinging to any views. Keep an open mind. That's the key thing. I must ask, what is it about Shantideva's 10th chapter on dedication that you, you find so brilliant? It's the 11th chapter. The 10th chapter is on wisdom and the 11th, I think it's the 11th, it's the last chapter on the dedication of merit. He explains what it means to be compassionate, to have a compassionate attitude better than anybody else I've ever encountered. Uh, I actually have a little bit of it right here in front of me. May all beings everywhere plagued by sufferings of body and mind obtain an ocean of happiness and joy by virtue of my merits. May no living creature suffer, commit an evil or fall ill. May no one be afraid or belittle with a mind weighed down by depression. May the blind see forms and the deaf hear sounds. May those whose bodies are worn with toil be restored and find repose. And it just goes on and on like that for a long time. May the frightened cease to be afraid and those bound be freed. May the powerless find power and may all people think of benefiting each other. So it's, it's, 
it's tapping into the suffering of the world and wishing everyone individually who's suffering the balm for their suffering. And it's just, a, you, you cannot read this, which goes on for page after page, uh, without really getting to the heart of compassion. Wonderful. It's, it's a brilliant work. Yes. Okay, computers. <laughs> Let's get back to computers. Computers and Buddhism. I know this is something that you have thought very deeply about. I'm curious, given your background in both, as we've established, both computers and Buddhism, what have you been thinking about this? Yeah. So, from my personal history, uh, computers have been very helpful in the sense that uh, word processor. I mean, the word processor is amazing. I couldn't have written the books that I've written without a, a backspace key. You know, if it was a typewriter, no, you'd have never seen any of these books. And then my, my website, I mean, you know, that's that's all computers, the whole Internet. Uh, all of my retreats get scheduled via email. They get posted on the Internet. People send out newsletters. So computers have been really good for Buddhism in a lot of ways. A lot of material is available now that would have been difficult in the past. The fact that we have digital copies of all the suttas that are searchable is just fantastic. Uh, the research for writing my books, if, if I had to do with the paper copies, yeah, I, I don't know that I'd ever bothered to do it because it had been such an arduous task. But I want to find something I can find it very easily by searching the digital copies. So all of that has been really, really helpful. The, the directions in which, it, which it's going, uh, some of this is going to be helpful and some of it maybe not so much. Uh, once the COVID hit, the fact that we could continue to do retreats via Zoom, the fact that we're doing this podcast via Zoom, this has been really good for Buddhism. Uh, if, if all of the teachings of Buddhism had stopped, except, you know, you go out and buy a book uh, during COVID, that would not have been great. But in fact, uh, I've been surprised at how well people can do with a Zoom retreat if they can get enough space to where they can you know, really do the practice. Uh, so computers and Buddhism have been quite compatible uh, as, as time has gone on. Where it's going to go? Um, yeah, there are lots of interesting things that you mentioned, AI and so forth. Um, not too sure about the AI thing. Uh, maybe we should discuss that next. AI has been touted, of course, as the, the great savior of all things. It, it's going to usher in sort of techno utopia, or it's going to Terminator 2 style, <laughs> destroy us yeah. all, or at least make us a uh, lot, you know, <laughs> very unemployed. Um, do you think, what do you think about programming actually is, first of all, uh, AI? I've heard a lot of people concerned that the emergence of AI will threaten the work of computer programmers in particular. Do you think that's likely? Possibly. I can see where it would, but there's still going to be the necessity of people dreaming up stuff that needs to be done. And I don't think AI is going to write bug-free code. All right. I mean, given maybe someday I'm in the future, but given given what's going on today, uh, 
know, I, I'm not, I'm actually not that impressed with AI at this point. It's good for doing research, but uh, so is Google. You know, <laughs> you can find stuff out by plugging it in. It's good at gathering things together, but I don't see it having creativity there. It's, it can automate some of the rote tasks, but I don't see it doing the creativity yet. Now, whether it will in the future or not, I don't know. But the whole thing that we have now is these large language models, meaning they just took a whole bunch of stuff and they stuffed it into the AI and it's regurgitating what it was stuffed with. And the quality of what it's stuffed with varies enormously. There's some very accurate stuff in there and there's some very highly questionable stuff in there. So I don't think the AI is very smart about figuring out what is of value and what is, oh, it occurs a bunch of times, must be good, although it happens to be inaccurate. So I'm not really, I'm not really, I don't know if AI will be able to take over from all programmers or whether programmers will be taking bits and pieces that are generated by AI and then stringing them together in ways that uh, AI will not be up to. Um, in other words, object-oriented programming became a thing back in, what, the 70s or 80s? I don't remember exactly. So AI may be good at generating objects, but then stringing the objects together may still require human programmers to get a really good quality thing. And there are always going to be bugs. You know, if you're good at finding bugs, you're always going to have a job because I don't think anybody's going to get an AI that writes bug-free code. The object itself, the code in that object may be bug-free, but when it interacts with this other object, ah, yeah, they didn't, they didn't really take care of that. So, um, I think there's still going to be room for programmers, both in terms of high level integration and low level bug fixing at the worst that it does for programming. But I'm still going to write my programs in C to get all my utilities. I'm not going to attempt to get AI to do anything for me. Why not? I like programming. It's a fun thing to do. <laughs> You know, and I can make it do exactly what I want it to do. You have a high level of programming skill and to, to troubleshoot or to deal with, uh, as you put it, high level integration between code that an AI writes and then it interacts with other things requires presumably quite a high level of skill. And that, that skill is developed by doing what? Well, writing basic code and learning how to do that. So in other words, the pipeline to skill might be undermined by the ease and convenience of, of AI. Something goes wrong and no one knows how to fix it because the last guy that had to write some basic code died 150 years ago or something like this. You know, I'm imagining, this is a sci-fi yeah. now, of course, I'm imagining. Yeah, so when they first made computers, you only had machine language, right? And then they figured out, oh, we can, we can uh, simplify machine language by making assembler. And we'll have symbols in there and then that can be assembled into machine language right and so now you're losing the ability to write in machine language but you're still making even more powerful computers because you've simplified the writing and then well instead of just being tied into the hardware with assembler let's make a more general language 
and they invented Fortran and COBOL, right? Now you're getting far away from the actual underlying machine. You're doing something. There's a lot of stuff happening under the covers, unk things happening under the covers, right? That's going on with your high level language that gets translated down there and it works really well most of the time occasionally there's bugs but most of the time okay and then you get to object-oriented programming and, and so we're building higher and higher levels of stuff and there's still work to be done to get all of the stuff that's there so it works well together and so it may be that most programming is happening at a higher and higher level but yeah if you're going to be a programmer it's good to at least know what goes on with machine language if you're going to debug, sometimes you've got to read the machine language to see what program, what, what instructions were generated to figure out what's going on. It's going to be definitely important to understand about assembler because you're working with a debugger. What you're going to see when you look at it mostly is going to be assembly type code. And yeah, so you're going to need to be able to do this, uh, even if you're working at a high level. So I think that programming itself will be around. Uh, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Unfortunately, I won't live long enough to see how it all plays out in 50 years, I don't think. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Maybe in your next life, Lee. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> in my next life, I will remember as much of this life as I remember of my previous one. Which I I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. So, um, uh, of course, this idea AI is going to threaten X Y jobs, right? This is, um, you know, this is one of one of the memes, and I think it is relevant in meditation teaching as well. Shinzen Young, your colleague friend Shinzen Young, one of his assertions is that one of the central uh, characteristics we could say of his approach to teaching meditation is, and he's explicit about this, algorithmic. It's crucial to how he presents his meditation teaching and also how his own system of meditation teaching has, has evolved. And uh, in fact, he teaches his students, and I know this firsthand, to analyze their own practice in an algorithmic way. And, you know, if you have the Shinzen algorithm, well, then you can answer a lot of, it's sort of a Shinzen AI that you get in your head if, if you're around him long enough. And you can sort of do a what would Shinzen say and put it into the algorithm. And of course, nothing replaces the genius of the man himself, but nonetheless, you can get a pretty good approximation a lot of the time, at least for simple practice questions. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, you've also talked a little bit about an algorithmic elements, at least of the Dharma path. If that's the case, how do you see AI interacting with meditation teaching? Is it possible that we can go on retreat with an AI? I, it's possible we could, but I don't think it would be a good experience. <laughs> okay, so the number one thing for a retreat teacher is to be able to fully connect with their students in the interview. Okay, to be a good retreat teacher, you need to be a good listener. You need to have the capacity to be fully present with what the student is saying and not only understand the words they're saying, but glean what's behind those words, right? Uh, it's a, well, Ayakima, my teacher talked about, it's a heart to heart connection. The words often are coming head to head, but 
in order to really help the student, what I need to do is connect with them heart to heart. I don't think a computer monitor, no matter how beautiful the picture it has on it, is going to be able to generate that connection. And so you come in and you go, I'm having trouble getting to the first jhana. Um, the fact that my mother loved my brother better than me keeps coming up. What do I do about that? And the AI comes back, oh, that was in the past. You're here now. You need to blah, 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 blah. That's not going to be at all helpful. The teacher needs to connect with the student at that level. Find out what's going on. Find out, you know, basically make a psychological connection with the student rather than just give them the instructions for the first genre again. Uh, sometimes, yeah, giving the student the instructions for the jhana again works, but most often you've got to figure out what's going on, and the student doesn't know what's going on, so they're not going to tell you, well, when I do this, it goes wrong because, no, they just know I'm, I'm following the instructions as best I can and it doesn't work. So now you've got to figure out how they're following the instructions and what else is going on beside. Is there unresolved psychological issues coming up? And if so, how can I skillfully help that person deal with what's coming up? Am I actually going to be better off helping them deal with that rather than trying to get them into the first jhana, which is sometimes the case. In fact, I would say that probably at least half the retreats I taught, the person that had the most profound retreat never got to a jhana, but they addressed something else in their life in a really deep way. And so if you have an AI that's aimed at yeah, teaching jhanas, sure, it can lay out the algorithm. That's, I mean, that's what's in the book that I wrote. And yet people read my book and they still have questions. So uh, the, it's, it's going to take that heart to heart connection for uh, an AI to work. And I don't think AI is going to have heart. AI is going to take a bunch of data that it read in its large language model and throw it at you. And it doesn't know what it's talking about, literally. It's just that, oh, I found all this data, let me show you it. And so I don't think it's going to be possible. Furthermore, the data that it has is of uh, questionable use. So when, once we started talking about this, it was like, oh, yeah. I know some about AI, but I better I better study up on it. So I found some really good primers on it and so forth. And then uh, in Edge, the Microsoft Edge browser, you can ask Bing, their search engine, AI questions. And it's really easy. You don't have to, you know, set up anything. You just go there and ask questions. You get five questions a day. <laughs> so I started asking it questions. And I can show you some of the stuff if you can set it up so I can share my screen. There we go. What is the cause of dukkha? Now, this is, this, is, this is a trick question. Most people would say the cause of dukkha is craving, tanha. <coughs> but the Buddha never talked about the cause of dukkha. He only talked about the origin of dukkha. It's like, what's the cause of the light shining? 
oh, the light switch is turned on. Well, no, that's a necessary condition for the light to shine. The cause of the light shining is electrons getting exciting and emitting photons. Right? That's the cause. But the Buddha is not talking about causes. He's talking about necessary conditions. So we have on the screen, what is the cause of dukkha? Right? The true nature of all existence is dukkha. No. No. That's not the true nature of all existence. The Buddha never said that. He said, all the things of creation are dukkha. But he didn't say that was their true nature. It's basically, all the things of creation are not going to give you lasting happiness, is what that means. Which means sorrow or suffering, eh, it's okay. Uh, unsatisfactoriness is better. Bummer is even better, but, you know, can't expect that from AI. Uh, most Buddhist doctrine is based on the fact of suffering. No, not most of it, uh, but a lot of it. It's reality calls and means of suppression. No, not means of suppression, means of overcoming. Uh, this form, the subject of the Buddha's first sermon, see the Four Noble Truths. Recognition of the fact of suffering is one of the three basic existence of existence, basic characteristics of existence. Uh, basic characteristics of all the things of creation. All right, created things are anicca, created things are anatta, created things are dukkha. In fact, all phenomena are anatta. Uh, the cause of dukkha is tanha, which means thirst, craving, or desire. That's a good translation of tanha, but uh, sorry, it's not the cause, it's a necessary condition. It is the craving for pleasure, material goods, and immortality that causes suffering. Well, that's, uh, that's a good beginning list, but there's other things you could possibly crave as well. So, uh, now the Zoom has covered up my ability to change. So, we give this a B, you know, it's not really deep, sophisticated, but, you know, you could find this in any beginner's book on Buddhism. Uh, so who are some famous teachers who have written about the jhanas? This was a question it suggested when I was asking questions. And it uh, mentions Ajahn Brahm, Bhante Gunaratna, Shaila Catherine, and myself. Okay, yeah. How do I know if I'm practicing jhana correctly? <clears throat> it is important to know that jhana practice is not easy and requires guidance from an experienced teacher. Okay. Yeah, I'll buy that. Um, however, there are some general guidelines that can help you know if you're practicing correctly. According to Lee Brasington, one of the famous Buddhist teachers who have written about the jhanas, there are some signs that indicate you're practicing correctly. These include, and there's a list, and I never said this. <laughs> okay. And this... It's not a good list. I mean, yes, you feel joy and happiness in the jhanas. <clears throat> you could have ease and relaxation. You may or may not have lightness. Spaciousness, yeah, if you get to the fifth jhana. Timelessness, if your concentration is good enough, but that doesn't mean you're in the jhana. If you experience these signs, the likelihood you're practicing jhana correctly. No, you get an F on this one. I'm sorry. <laughs> Doesn't work. Does not work. <clears throat> Another one. Why are the jhanas important? So it talks about what they are. The jhanas are a way for the mind to find unity and peace within itself. Okay, but that's not why they're important. 
uh, when the mind can settle, a great joy and happiness can arise. Oh, like that's a start. Eventually, this will take the mind to the state as known as jhanas, where the mind is unified and free from searching for other objects. This is still not why it's important. People who practice the jhanas defend it as a way of being able to go deeper into the mind peacefully and thereby get more insights because of the greater sense of peace there. Uh, the greater insight part, yeah, okay, but not because of the greater sense of peace. The greater insights because, arise because of the jhanas generate a concentrated mind, an indistractable mind, and to get there, it suppresses your noble ego functioning. It's not the peace that's doing it. It's the lack of ego, the looking at the world from a less egocentric perspective when you uh, exit the jhana. And indeed, the Dhammapada says you can't have wisdom without jhana. And it also says you can't have jhana without wisdom. Uh, what are some of the others? How can I tell whether I'm in third jhana or fourth jhana? Uh, and it just gives the the characteristics. Third jhana is characterized by joy changing into a more subdued feeling of contentment, while fourth jhana is characterized by equanimity reigning with neither positive or negative sensations, mind or body. So this all pervasive peace with the mind singularly focused upon itself. Well, it didn't answer the question. This is a question I get a lot. People come and they say, well, I, I can't tell whether I'm in the third or fourth jhana. The answer is, if it's pleasant, it's third jhana. If it's neutral, it's fourth jhana, assuming that, you know, the other parts are there, the, the quiet, the stillness, the peacefulness, etc. Not a good answer. Uh, how does one go from fourth jhana to fifth jhana? Uh, the transition from fourth jhana to fifth jhana is characterized by the practitioner's attention shifting outwards, right? As if watching himself from above. What? Where did that come from? The body, no, the body is gone for the fifth jhana. The body experiences floating expansive sensations or gra gradually filling out all of space. You start out by expanding your body, possibly. Now, there's other things you could expand. Uh, we give this one an F. Uh, what should I do if I have trouble entering the first jhana? Uh, entering the first jhana requires generating access concentration. Okay, it's quoting me, which is a state of mind that's calm and focused but not fully absorbed. That's pretty good. The method for entering jhana begins with generating access concentration by sitting in a comfortable upright posture. That's from Buddhist Inquiry, which is BCBS, and they're quoting me. It needs to be comfortable because if there's too much pain, aversion will, will naturally develop in the mind. That's not exactly what I said. If there's pain, then aversion can arise, is what I said. Uh, once you've generated access concentration, you can then move on to the first jhana, which is characterized by piti and sukha. Uh, but how, wait, how, did, how do you move on? That's what I ask. How, what should I do if I have trouble moving on and never got around to answering the question? So, yeah, the state of AI is that it doesn't really know what it's talking about and it can give some information that's pretty good and it can give a lot of information that's just not there or even incorrect. And it's not going to have a heart, and that's going to be the, the number one problem. Doing interviews is very tiring for me, not because 
I don't have the information. I have trouble accessing the information to pass. That's the easy part. It's trying to figure out what the student is actually needing. What are they saying with these words? What's behind it? What's going on psychologically? Uh, do they just need a connection with a human being? Uh, information, passing information for some students might be 80% of the interview. For other students, it might be 5% of the interview. And it's more about the connection that's important. So I don't think AI is going to be a very good retreat teacher. How do you make that heart connection navigate that heart connection? Yeah, some interviews are pretty much algorithmic. Those are the easy ones. But the hard one, okay, the first thing is to be fully present, totally with the person, and to come across as, I care about you. I care about your practice. I care about you as a person. How can I help you? So making the heart connection there, just really come across as a caring person. That's it. And from then on, it's just because I've made that connection and I'm fully present with them, then I've got to see what are they opening up about. Some people just open up and start, you know, laying it all out and others are quite uh, reticent to open up. And I have to still pick out from what they're saying or not saying what's going on. And having done this long enough, you know, for over 25 years now, I, I, I get a sense of, oh, this person has some trauma in their background, or this person is really looking for sources of pleasure, or, you know, whatever's going on. And so I, I just try to read the person and see what I can figure out from what they're saying as to what they actually need. My job is not to give the student what I know. My job is to figure out what the student needs and address those needs to the best of my ability. And with that attitude, it's it's an art. It's it's more psychological. Uh, when I first started teaching, you know, I was a little worried about the psychological aspect. But I, I knew I had good information. And uh, luckily, the first retreat I taught, there were people there that wanted the good information. And the psychological part of it wasn't the biggest part of it. Uh, it was there. It was definitely there. But, uh, you know, it gave me confidence. OK, I can do this. I can give these people this information and I can connect with people. I've. I've long had the ability to connect with people. The trick to connecting with people is ask them about themselves. You get introduced to someone, you don't start telling them who you are, you ask them who they are. And they think you're a wonderful conversationalist. So that's what I want to know. When someone comes to an interview with me, I want to know what happens when you meditate. And so they're already talking about themselves. The first question I ask is how you're doing. And that may be enough. They may be telling me immediately what's going on. But if they say fine or yeah, it's going pretty good or, you know, and the, so tell me what happens when you meditate. And then from there, just try and figure out how can I connect with person with this person as deeply as possible. You're speaking, of course, from the perspective of great deal of mastery of 
meditation teaching, lots of experience doing it. Not all meditation teachers are equal in their skill, either in the information they have or their ability to navigate these rather more subtle realms of the psychological and the heart and the implied and what's not said and so on and so forth. And not all meditation teachers are able to keep their own reactivity or agendas or hopes in the path from being imposed upon the students and so on, not mm-hmm. to keep themselves out of it. AI here really is a proxy for us to talk about what makes good meditation teaching. It's really, I think, performing that function here. But could AI be better than most meditation teachers? If not master meditation teachers, could it be better than most meditation? Would it be better to have a flat, informational, algorithmic AI than bad meditation teacher or a mediocre meditation teacher? I think all meditation teachers, so I'm talking retreat teachers where they're interacting with students one-on-one or maybe in a small group. I think all meditation teachers that are going to make any progress being a meditation teacher are going to have to have that connection ability. Uh, Just flat information, you can get that from a book. So the the Jhana book I wrote, Right Concentration, uh, I I resisted writing it for a long time, one, because I don't like to write, but two, it was like, I can can put down the information, but everybody's different. If I put down everything I know, it's just going to be full of contradictory information. I have to put down the, I have to put down the white line down the middle of the road and then feed that to the students. Then they come to the interview and this guy's about to run off to the ditch in the left. You've got to work harder. You can't be goofing off. And the other guy's running off into the ditch on the right. Uh, You need to relax. You're trying too hard, you know. So work harder and relax. Uh, Well, okay, relax diligence is the phrase I use to try and pass that along in a general way, but I've got to figure out with each student. And so I think any decent meditation teacher has got to make the connection with their students. A good meditation teacher teaches the students as opposed to teaching a method or something like that. Uh, You can teach a method and maybe the student gets it. But if you can teach the student, it's going to be far better. And so what you want to have is a broad enough basket of techniques and methods that you can give the students something to work on. But even more important, you need a big heart to be able to connect with the student so that one, they feel secure enough, open it up with you, and two, you can connect well enough to see what they actually need. Very interesting. Okay, for completeness, I will ask you, what makes a bad meditation teacher then? The number one thing I would say that make a bad meditation teacher is if the teacher has an agenda, okay? Even if the agenda is a noble agenda, because they're trying to force their agenda out there. And uh, no, teach the student, don't teach your agenda. So um, bad meditation teachers are ones that their agenda is self-aggrandizement. That's the worst, I would think. And you do get that. 
uh, bad meditation teachers are looking for something from their students for themselves. The only thing I want from my students is that they have a positive experience that improves their life. But if the meditation teacher wants something from the student, be it a donation at the end of the retreat or praise or anything else, uh, that's that's not good. Uh, in, in the 70s, there was this thing in programming called uh, egoless programming. And so egoless meditation teacher is what we're after, you know, where keep your ego out of the way. The problem is, of course, if you don't put your own ego out there, your students are going to project onto you. And the projections, because you're the teacher, they're going to put you on a pedestal and believing what your students project onto you, that makes a bad meditation teacher. Okay. Um, I, I was lucky when I first started teaching, I was in a relationship and I could see somebody's projecting and I would say, you need to talk to my girlfriend. You know, because just try and shoot down their putting me on a pedestal because this is going to happen all the time. Uh, transference, counter-transference. I mean, these, these uh, phrases from psychology are going to apply to meditation teachers. And so don't believe what the students are telling you about you or projecting onto you. And then a teacher that does that is, is not going to be a good teacher. Um, yeah, agendas and believing the projections. Uh, another thing that is really important. So I was in Jack Cornfield's teacher training program and uh, we would have we'd visit other teachers in the Bay Area or fly them in and have them spend a day with us. And the best was Yvonne Rand, who was a Zen teacher at San Francisco Zen Center. We went out to her place uh, at Mirror Beach. And two things she said, number one, don't believe your own publicity. And number two, you must have people in your life who will call you on your stuff. And that's really important. So a bad meditation teacher would be one who believes their own publicity or doesn't have people that will call them on their stuff. Uh, it's really important that the friends I have, they will say to me, that's bullshit, Lee. You know, they're the most important, valuable friends I've got. And luckily, I have a number of them around. And it, it's they're so valuable. So yeah, a teacher that doesn't have that is going to be going in the direction that's not going to be helpful. You know, they say a new convert is often the most fervent evangelist. And yeah. you talk about agenda. And sometimes I'm, I'm curious to hear you expand a bit more on what it might look like for a meditation teacher to be agenda driven. Sometimes uh, it's difficult, I think, to unpick the difference between confidence in what one's teaching the path that one has presumably walked and the path which one <clears throat> may not have walked but really really wishes is true hopes to be true believes is true and sometimes i think the believer of 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 the thing that is not experienced can be almost more fervent uh, mm -hmm. and more evangelical than, than the one who's actually walked the path both the idealistic believer and the experienced path walker would presumably have 
a certain kind of confidence, which might be difficult to differentiate to the, mm -hmm. uh, to the novice. It's a classic shortcoming or uh, it's a classic um, deficiency of a novice is how to determine if this confidence is someone who knows what they're talking about or it's just someone who's really, really confident about what they're saying for reasons that might be to do with you know, their own belief in the thing and they need it to be true and they wish it to be true and so on. So can you talk a little bit more about agenda and what that means and how to determine or how to distinguish between the sort of confidence of the uh, believer and the confidence of the experienced path walker? Yeah. It's, it's definitely hard to distinguish if you're a novice. I mean, you're getting it coming at you with a lot of confidence and it sounds good and it matches some of what you know and it, it can be really quite difficult to try and figure out what's going on there. Uh, a teacher that has an agenda often is pushing that agenda even if that's not what the student actually needs. In other words, they have the technique. They, they've studied and practiced the ABC technique, and it's been really powerful for them. And it really worked. I mean, it's a genuinely good technique. And their job is for all the students to do the ABC technique, whether that's a useful thing for the student or not. Um, and so, um, there are certain practices that just are not going to work for some people. For example, the Mahasi Sayadaw noting practice. When I was given that, it was like, this is too busy. I want to be quiet. I want some peace. This is, this, my, my mind's busy enough already. You're giving me no more stuff to be. So I didn't do it. You know, it, it didn't work. But had I studied with someone who had insisted that I do that, it wasn't going to work very well because I'm stubborn, you know, and I would not have had a good retreat. And I might have left the Dharma entirely because you know, thinking that that was what it was. So a, a teacher needs to be really flexible to understand what's going to be useful for the student sitting in front of them right now, rather than here's an agenda that I know works because it worked for me and shove it down everybody's throat. But for the novice student, it's difficult. Um, anytime you run across any teacher that's giving you my way or the highway, uh, find the highway, <laughs> you know, uh, go somewhere else because a good teacher is going to be flexible and not insist that there's only one way of doing it. A, a, teach, a good teacher might insist that there's a wrong way of doing it. You know, if the wrong way is exploiting others, causing harm, things like that, certainly they're going to do that. But the, the traditional saying 84,000 Dharma doors. Okay, so there's 84,000 different ways to practice. I mean, don't take the number literally. But, uh, and if a teacher is saying there's only my way, then they have a very limited view of the Dharma. And so maybe, maybe their way is really helpful and useful, but it is going to be limited. How enlightened should a meditation teacher be? What I mean by that is meditation teaching comes in many forms. There's corporate mindfulness for de-stressing and well-being, for example, 
its goal is to de-stress and relax, etc. Okay. Some paths purport to, including I think the path of meditation that you present, purport to lead the way to liberation from suffering. It's a lofty claim. Of course, few meditation teachers, at least out loud, will claim themselves to be fully liberated, in other words, to have followed the path to its end. So presumably there's a degree to which they're taking a portion of its of of the path on faith, the bit that they haven't walked yet. I think for some that might present if not an ethical dilemma, maybe an intellectual one. Mm -hmm. uh, to what degree can one confidently present a path that one hasn't actually walked all the way? Uh, yeah. How far along does the meditation teacher, in your view, need to be before they can sort of ethically propagate a path that claims to lead to the, as we say, liberation of suffering? Yeah. Well, if we go with, you need to be fully awakened before you can teach. There are not going to be very many teachers. <laughs> and they're probably going to be in the backwoods of Tibet and Burma. And yeah. I've talked to Westerners who claim full liberation. When I, when I meet one, I poke them, not physically, but, you know, mentally to see. Yeah. You poke them and see how they respond to some dukkha. None of them are fully awakened. None of the ones I've poked. Okay. So, um, yeah, if we're going to have meditation teachers, then you're going to be getting it from people who haven't walked the whole way. More than likely, like way more than 99.9% .9 likely. Okay. But hopefully the teacher has walked the path far enough that they have personally experienced significant benefit from the practice. And so the, <coughs> the, the minimum would be they have experienced significant benefit from their own practice and can articulate what, you know, they've done and how it works and have the capacity to relate to other people or a good listener if it's their retreat teacher and so forth. As for stages of awakening, you would hope that a teacher had gotten at least as far as the first path moment, stream entry. It would be even better had they gotten to the second path moment or the third, you know. But how do you know that? You know, someone could claim that they are a stream enterer. Uh, if you're not a stream enterer, how are you going to test that? Uh, the only way you could test that is become a stream enter yourself and then check back to the guy who's straight, claiming stream entry and see does what he says and what he describes match your own experience. So I think what we have to do is find people that seem to be exhibiting pretty significant spiritual growth and are able to articulate how they got there. And know enough about the path in general so that if someone is experiencing something other than they what they have experienced, other than what the teacher has experienced, they can at least point the student in a direction where they can get the help with what they're experiencing. I would put it like that. 
rather than say, oh, they need to be a whatever. Uh, they need to have they need to have made significant progress on the path. They need to understand how they got to the significant progress and be able to articulate that. They need to be able to connect with their students and they need to know enough of the general terrain, even if they don't know the particulars, to be able to point their students to other modalities, teachers, retreats, practices, even if they don't know them well, if that's what the student actually needs rather than what they know. So a good meditation teacher should be able to say, is likely to going to say, I don't know where this goes, but so far so good. I think a good meditation teacher say, I haven't experienced where this can lead, but so far so good. I haven't experienced the ultimate of where this can lead, but so far so good. I also talk to a lot of people who claim to be enlightened fully or yes. various degrees of it, you know, in, in this podcast. And I, I always find it very fascinating. I'm less myself concerned as to whether their claim is true that I am fascinated that they're making it. How do you poke someone who claims to be enlightened? Do you have any good poking stories? I'm not asking for names. I wouldn't ask you to, to, to for a yeah, name, but you know, like a, a, a nameless anecdote. Yeah. So it wouldn't be my first, you know, I wouldn't walk up to someone, oh, I hear you're enlightened, poke. You know, I would have some idea of their background, what's going on. I would gauge them in a conversation, uh, have some idea of something that they probably have some attachment to and then start poking what I think they might be attached to and see how they react. You know, someone's written a book and, you know, it's a pretty good book, but, you know, I see some flaws in it, right? And so I'm, I'm discussing with, yeah, I read your book, but, you know, in that chapter on such and such, you say this, and I, I don't think that's true. I, in fact, I think that's bad dharma and watch how they react. Okay, so I just called them on something that they, they put down in black and white. And it's really interesting, if you write a book, before you wrote the book, the ideas that you put into that book, maybe you were holding them kind of lightly, but once you wrote them, <laughs> I noticed this in myself, you tend to cling on to it more. You, you begin to lose that open-handed holding of the views and start clinging to it. So now I've poked this guy's, gal's view in their book that I don't agree with and just see how they react and, you know, just keep poking it a bit and see if they start to get what I would say is perturbed, you know, start, they're experiencing a bit of dukkha here and they all do. Okay. I'll, I'll ask a question now. That's, um, I think I, I would like to ask you a bit more about computers, but seeing as this is an interesting vein we've had, um, uh -huh. given that, We've established that a meditation teacher, Buddhist meditation teacher even, doesn't necessarily need to have walked the whole path in order to teach meditation ethically, should we say, you know, with a reasonable degree of, in your view, a sort of minimum level of competency in the various mm -hmm. skills of teaching. And that some of the prerequisites include an understanding of the system and the techniques and an ability to connect to people, but also some sort of personal transformation of some type, some effect that the, the, the teacher has had. Uh, that seems to be, uh, you're saying, an important aspect. What in that case distinguishes 
Perhaps the answer is nothing. Buddhism from other kinds of faith-based systems, such as, well, Christianity, for example, a meditation teacher, a Buddhist meditation teacher who hasn't gone all the ways, we could say, in a faith-based system, to some extent, there's a, there's a gap of faith, or if not the word faith isn't the right word, then at least um, speculation. But I think that those words more or less function similarly in this, in this example. People in, uh, say, Christianity, good Christians can have profound transformation. Things mm -hmm. bother them, things bother them less. Mm -hmm. um, I've known Christians whose hearts are opened in quite remarkable and attractive ways. They're good examples of their religion. I'm thinking of one guy in particular who's my neighbor in California. And the whole neighborhood would say about him, in, in Rod we trust. Because he was a Christian, but he's a good, he's a fundamentalist Christian, but he's a, he's a good advertisement, if you like, of that religion. He's always available to help. He's retired, but all he does is just help people out, fixing things. And he's a remarkable, remarkable man, whatever religion it, it, he is, he's a remarkable man. And his faith uh, system suffuses his, uh, his view in the way, you know, he credits it, it for that, mm -hmm. it drives him. So what differentiates the faith of a Buddhist meditation teacher from the faith of those other religions. Uh, do you see a difference there, or do you find them all, all to be sort of equally valid for spiritual progress, I suppose, or how we want to conceive of that? Yeah, I think, I think in all the religions, there is, <clears throat> there is a germ of spiritual flourishing available. Okay, so all of them have something that will take you out of the ordinary culture, cultural view of uh, secular cultural view of the world and take you to someplace better where you become a better person. I think pretty much any religion has that capacity. Um, the, the word sada is usually translated as faith. I like translating as confidence in the sense that, okay, somebody laid out a path here and I've it sounds good. I have enough confidence to try it out. <clears throat> okay, so now I try it out and it makes some positive changes in who I am. And now I have more confidence in it because it's leading me in the direction I want to go. And I continue to follow it. And oh, it's changed me even more in the direction I want to go. So I have even more confidence. And I think that that can be in any religion. It's just that what I found in practicing Buddhism is the instructions here work best for me, and they work much better than the Christianity I grew up with or what I know about any of the other religions. Um, it, so on that first retreat with Ayakema, I asked a question, I don't remember what the question was, but her answer surprised me. She said, oh, there's nothing to believe. The Buddha said, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. And that was the turning point because, you know, literal Christianity is all about belief. And here's something that says, you don't have to believe anything. You just need to investigate. It was like, oh yeah, I'm a scientist. I can investigate. And so the fact that the path didn't require belief, but only investigation was really important. It's the same thing with Taoism, the opening line of the Tao Te Ching. 
The path that can be walked is not the ultimate path or the truth that can be told is not the ultimate truth. Again, it's like, okay, we're going to give you instructions, but this isn't it. You got to go explore this for yourself. That's, that's what clued me into, oh yeah, this is a good one to explore as well. Uh, so the lack of belief was really important for me. The fact that this still worked, even if you didn't believe anything and you just explored, was what turned me on to it. Um, a path that requires a lot of belief, I'm pretty skeptical of, but I will admit that a path that requires a lot of belief can have pretty profound implications, changes in people. Your, your friend Rod, it, it made him a really wonderful person. So yeah, great. It's just it wouldn't work for me because, I, yeah, I'm not a belief guy. And so you ask me, do I believe that what I'm doing is going to take me to full awakening? I have confidence that if I can do it well enough, it'll take me to some pretty amazing places. That's as far as I'm willing to go. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. But that's good enough for me. I just keep practicing. That's why I'm going on retreat this month. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I'm running my Christian, um, a kind of Christian uh, AI right now <laughs> in my mind, just from, you know, my experiences with, with Christians and so on. And Christian might say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah. You don't have to believe anything. You don't have to believe anything, at least not to try it. Just open your heart to God. You know, that's, yeah. a, that's a technique. Uh, try it. Yeah. So my, my, my question would be, uh, which God? Because there's lots of gods. I was reading something today. So there's 4,000 different religions being practiced on this planet. So which God? What's that God like? And I got questions about your God. I mean, I'm going to start exploring right away. And if if it requires me not asking those questions, I'm going to go the other way. That's I got to I got to be allowed to ask any question I, that comes to my mind. Seeing as we're playing AI, which enlightenment? There are so many different kinds of enlightenment. There's different enlightenments within Buddhism. There's different enlightenments within Indic religion more broadly and religion more, you know, within religion more broadly. There's such debate about that. There's been such, which enlightenment? Yeah. yeah. So uh, since I'm following the Buddha's path that he laid out, he said, all I teach is Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. So the enlightenment would be the end of Dukkha. That appears to arrive with the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. That appears to arrive with the end of the asavas, the intoxicants of sensual desire becoming an ignorance. So yeah, that's where that's the direction I want to go in. Have we come to a faith statement in the end? No, it's this is what's promised, and I have enough confidence that it's leading me in that direction because I see that I'm not as greedy and I'm certainly not as aversive and I seem to be even less deluded than I used to be. So it seems to be progressing in that direction. But I also see that, yeah, okay, essential desire, that's always been my number one hindrance. It's still there. I still got work to do. So I can't complain that I'm not there because I can see that I'm still called and I'm going on a retreat to see what I can do about that. I don't have any, well, as I say, I'm just going to show up and see what happens, but it would be nice to make progress in that direction. Thank you for playing that little AI game with uh, with me, or I suppose devil's advocate, or, or could we say um, 
Finn Mara's advocate here. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for playing that game with me. Um, we said we would come here to talk about uh, AI and computers and uh, things of that nature. And we've done quite a bit of that, I think, and it's led us into all sorts of interesting areas. What's more to say on it? What more thoughts do you have? What other things do you want to make sure we touch on while we're here together and talking about these sorts of themes? Yeah, the, the use of ultrasound to generate mind states. Okay, so the, the one that Shenzhen was all excited about was using ultrasound to generate Naroda. This was in a podcast on Naroda. And so can you generate a, a mind blink, Naroda? Uh, and probably it would be possible. I don't know enough, but I could, you know, from what I know a, a little bit about reading about what can be done, probably you can figure out to do, how to do that. But I don't think you're going to generate a path moment. I would say the mind blink Naroda is a symptom of a path moment, but not a path moment. Okay. Being happy is a symptom of second jhana, but you might be happy for all sorts of reasons that aren't second jhana. Okay. The stream entry path moment requires a lot of letting go. And having a mind blink didn't address the letting go that's necessary to have that path moment. The letting go requires a lot of insight into the nature of reality so that all the stuff that you're hanging on to, you can let go because you see it's either impermanent or dukkha or without any core, anatta. Okay. And so the path moment comes by deeply understanding one of these three characteristics to the extent that you let go and it's the letting go that generates the path moment and a side effect of that path moment is the mind blink neurota experience cessation experience simply putting somebody into that well they just had a mind blink that's all it's not going to give them a path moment mahasi tayadao actually talks about this i don't remember the phrase that he uses but i was talking about this with uh, Heather Sundberg, and she said, oh yeah, that's uh, a near miss. In other words, you do something and you get the mind blank, but it's not the path moment, it's a near miss. It sort of looks like a path moment when you first start describing, but when you investigate, okay, what was the letting go like? What's your insight into, say, a Nietzsche like? And it was like, oh, no, I don't think you got there yet. You didn't, you didn't really get deep enough insight and you really let go enough, but you did get the mind blink. And so I think that's what uh, Shenzhen is going to wind up finding. He can generate the mind blinks, perhaps, but he's not going to generate a path moment by doing that. And the same thing with using ultrasound to generate, uh, say, the jhanas. Okay, so you generate the second jhana, all right? You hang out there. Great. Right? When you come out of it, where are you? Do you have the indistractability that's generated by first getting into access concentration and then moving into the first jhana and then moving into the second jhana? Or did you just have a really happy experience right now? Uh, I mean, you can generate a second jhana experience with things of the world. Uh, 
your friend calls you up and say, you know, you're the best friend I ever had. And I just ordered something from Amazon that you've been talking about wanting. It's going to show up on your doorstep tomorrow. You're going to love it. And when you open the box, you're going to be so happy. And you're like, wow, I really appreciate this from your friend. And you got the happy. It's not the second jhana, even though the happiness flavor tastes exactly the same. So brain stimulating the second jhana might be useful for people that are uh, have trouble with pleasure. Uh, have trouble being happy because it they actually understand oh this is something that can actually happen it wires up the neurological pathways in a way that perhaps never had but i don't think it's going to be the second jhana i think it's it's going to be helpful for, for so-called dysthymic people if you can show them that there is possibility of this happiness and then help them understand ways that they can generate this happiness on their own therapeutic use yeah, I think this is useful research, but I don't think it's going to be breakthrough research. I think you're still going to have to do the hard work. In other words, no shortcuts. Sorry. I mean, I'd love to be wrong. I'd go around zapping everybody, making everybody stream interests. Yeah, we'd have a much better planet. People would, you know, recycle, put solar on their houses, stop driving so much, etc. Uh, I don't think so. You said it might be or could be useful research. What use do you think it might have? If not uh, zapping people into our headship, if not that, then what might be its use? Yeah, well, the ther therapeutic thing. I don't know about the neurota. I don't know if that's going to have any therapeutic advantage. But zapping people into the jhanic states just so that they can taste it. Oh, this is what real happiness is like. Uh, it's like it's like using psilocybin for people with PTSD. It seems to take them out of the self that is the stressed out PTSD self and put them into a new space that it gives a, a permanent change. Okay, so instead of taking psilocybin for PTSD, we zap you and put you in what appears to be the second jhana. And it's, it's, so I think there are therapeutic possibilities there. Uh, I ha I can't come up with a therapeutic possibility of uh, a blink out Naroda or even putting somebody in Naroda. Well, therapeutic possibility putting somebody in Naroda for two hours while they have a root canal. Maybe that could be useful, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm still going to go with the novocaine and, uh, uh, and nitrous oxide. One of the uh, consequences of Naroda that sometimes uh, I've heard different descriptions, of course, but one of them is that afterwards there's a there can be sort of afterglow or at least some some sort of sense of well-being or or profundity mm -hmm. that follows it. One, of course, is not aware of being in the road at the time by definition, but afterwards it's there's yeah. something there. I wonder. I think of my own meditation practice. One of the things that keeps me, I think, from deeper states of various types, such as neuroda, for example, is this a sort of fear really of letting mm -hmm. go um and uh which comes i suppose from, from many things but one of them is and i don't you know i don't know what's on the other side of the letting go actually yeah and so do you think that how much of that afterglow of naroda is from the naroda how much of it's from the letting go that builds into the naroda and so on and i wonder if you have any thoughts on that and could there be value for someone like me to be zapped into Naroda and then come out the other side and think, gosh, that wasn't so bad. Might that facilitate my 
my death grip on my on my egoic state such that I could I could become an arhat or something like that maybe you know is that is that could that be a possibility a sort of I suppose in a, an adjunct to practice in that sort of way it's a possibility but don't ask me for a percentage of probability <laughs> in other words it may be that it's it's the letting go into the state that produces the afterglow not the being in the state but letting go so people trying to learn the jhanas uh i can almost tell somebody's past use of mind-altering drugs on how they approach the first jhana so uh, some people they'll start getting into the you know they, they've gotten to the pleasant sensation they focus on it and it starts to build and they're going out of control and they pull out and most frequently if it happens multiple times i can say to them uh, how much pot did you smoke in your hippie days oh i, I smoked it a, a couple of times i didn't really like it the people that smoked a lot of pot yeah, they start going out of control. And it's like, oh, this is like first rush on pot. Yeah, and they're in the jhana immediately. I mean, I smoked a lot of pot when it started happening to me the first time. I just let it go, and it took me into the first jhana. I didn't know it was a jhana or anything. but So this fear of letting go into an altered state is there even at the level of the first jhana. And it can certainly be there and even heightened in letting go into Naroda, where yeah, blank out, you know, that's that's a lot more scary than ecstasy or something for the first jhana. So yeah, the fear could be stronger. But tapping somebody into the first jhana, and they're seeing, oh, it's okay, it's okay, maybe would help their fear, and they see the state is okay. Zapping somebody into Naroda where you don't see what happened, I don't know what it would be like coming out of it. So there, there, there are possibilities there. And, you know, the only way we're going to find out is, yeah, somebody figures out how to do it and does the research and finds willing subjects. And is it ethical? And, you know, all this other stuff. Uh, I think we're quite a ways from finding out. Uh, but who knows? But I'm sure the advantage of being able to let go that much so that you go there naturally is going to be more advantageous than getting zapped there. Because as Ayakema said, the whole of the spiritual path is letting go. There's nothing to get. There's everything to let go of. One thing I tell my students when I'm talking about uh, the Eightfold Path, second one is uh, right intention. First part of right intention is renunciation, letting go. And I tell them, look, I read this book called Liberation in the Palm of Your Hands, Tibetan tradition book, big old thick book, it was good. But the title is the best part because it's true, we all have liberation in the palm of our hands. You can see it, make a fist. Come on, all of you out there in TV land, make a fist. All right, now, you wanna see liberation? Look at the palm of your hand. Look at it, yeah, that's how you get there. That's what it's about. And what do you got to let go of? Everything. So getting zapped someplace when you didn't let go, nah, not going to take you there, I don't think. This has been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. I, I've totally enjoyed it too. Thank you. Splendid. And I know that we're all planning 
a conversation, further conversations between you and Shinsen and Chelsea and Jay and perhaps even Ruben Laconin, uh, Dustin Armstrong and so on. There's a group of people that have been discussing uh, some, some of the, the, the themes you've been touching on here, just in, especially in this last half an hour or so. There's, I think, great enthusiasm all around to have you bring these themes up actually in discussion with them. So I'm really looking forward to that happening. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thank you for facilitating these wonderful discussions. This is this is such a great channel. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Lee Brasington, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.